0: everyone welcome back to la not so confidential this is dr shiloh and hello dr scott how are you doing today hey
1: dr shiloh i'm doing pretty good as we're sliding into the holiday season you know spooky season was way too short
0: it snuck up i know i didn't even get to like savor it i feel like
1: either it's just like i'm just rolling around in pumpkin spice trying to recapture the moment i mean i can still do pumpkin spice all the way through thanksgiving right i mean (laughs) technically right oh
0: yeah yeah yeah, okay. yeah yeah for sure but All I right. think I only did one Trader Joe's haul. I need to go back before oh, Thanksgiving stuff. I know. Oh the <laughs>
1: Trader Joe's <laughs> never fails. I know,
0: I know. I don't really have any housekeeping at the top. So why don't you give us our recap for our last episode?
1: I will. But please, folks, just a little bit of housekeeping that I can think of is okay. remember that we do our live streaming show once a month on Saturdays at four Pacific Standard Time. We blitz it all over social media. Everybody always says, Wow, I didn't know that was going to happen. I wish I'd been there live so I could have asked questions. So please join us. And also, we have a Patreon, as most of you know, and we now offer an ad-free listening experience for our Patreon members. We'd love to have you as part of that. And let me give you a recap of last week's episode on Hoarding and the unexpected crimes that can be involved in hoarding. Yep. So last week we brought you that episode on the phenomenon and diagnosis of hoarding, and we provided some examples of how significant this disorder has at times intersected with the commission of a crime, both intentional and non-intentional. So when you get a moment, please take a few minutes to listen to it, and maybe even schedule a re-listen to it in about five months to really get you motivated to do your spring cleaning. I mean, I after like that. You, I, yeah, after you. When I researched this. We were like, okay, we're gonna freaking Marie Kondo our houses because we do not want to experience that, right?
0: Yes. Actually, the day we recorded it, I was cleaning out my closet. I'm getting all hangers the same color. Ooh, love that <laughs> to try and make it a little bit more aesthetically pleasing because my closet's tiny and I just need a little sprucing. But- I
1: can't remember which neurochemical gets popped into your mm. head when you do tasks like that I can't remember if it's dopamine or serotonin oh but it there's hits definitely hard a connect- for me oh yeah I mean mine will just get so cluttered and then I'm like oh I'm gonna do the couch or I'm gonna do the bookshelves and then you get it done it's like oh
0: it is a thing Aww. it is a
1: thing of beauty. It
0: is. It is. But we've got
1: a very, very different show today, a very different topic from hoarding. Can you lead us in?
0: Yeah. So this is, of course, your vintage episode of the month. And this is an episode that I've been working on for months. I feel like I've pushed it back three times now just because I wanted to get through our main resource today, which is a book and just... This deserves a lot of good detail and attention here because we have a lot of things going on in this vintage case. Today, we're going to be covering the case of three little girls who were murdered in Inglewood, California in 1937. And our main source is the book, Little Shoes, the Sensational Depression-era Murders that Became My Family's Secret by Pamela Everett. Now, Miss Everett, she found out as an adult that her father's sisters were victims of this horrific crime. And actually one night when she had kind of run off to her boyfriend's house as a teenager, her dad finally tracked her down. And I mean, he had tears in his eyes. And this was a very stoic father that she always knew as a very unemotional man. And basically, he broke down when he found her and he said, I lost two sisters. Then really never spoke about it again. She was like, what the fuck was that? Yeah. So she decided to do her own research on her family's tragic history. And Miss Everett, she's an attorney. She's a criminal justice professor. She's also a volunteer at the Innocence Project. And she's a former journalist.
1: Wow. What a great combination of interests and responsibilities and passions. I love that.
0: I know. And fantastic read. I can't recommend it enough. As far as trigger warnings, just please note that this case includes the sexual assault and murder of children, as well as a capital punishment execution. So we are going to be getting into it today. So today's vintage crime took place on Saturday, June 26, 1937 in Centinella Park, which is in Inglewood. And the historic location was renamed in 1997 to honor Edward Vincent Jr., the first African American mayor of the city. So it's no longer called Centinella Park. If you try to go there today, it's called Edward Vincent Park.
1: So the earliest residents of what is now Inglewood were actually Native Americans who used the Aguaje de Sentinella Natural Springs, which are located in sentinella park or what was sentinella park like you said the original settlers of the inglewood area were spanish soldiers around 1781 these settlers were ordered by the officials of the san gabriel mission to graze their animals on the ocean side of los angeles in order not to infringe on mission lands and as a result the settlers drove some of their cattle to the lush pasture lands near sentinella springs and the first building constructed there in 1822 was a corral and a hut for the herders.
0: I love it just thinking about like, oh, on the ocean side of LA. It's, <laughs> like, what would that even mean today? I
1: know, I know. How cool.
0: So today, Inglewood's home to such landmarks as Randy's Donuts, yep. the donut shop with the big giant donut on top that you can see as you're flying into LAX, as well as SoFi Stadium where the LA Rams and LA Chargers play. Dr. Scott, that's football. Just well, so you know.
1: I will say this. I do know Randy's Donuts. Randy's Donuts is an icon in the LA background and it has been In many movies, including a movie that I was in back in the 80s, and we'll just have to send some swag to somebody if they can figure out what I was in that Randy's donuts played a significant part. Okay, that's awesome. I
0: love that. Please email us, hit us up on social media if you have a guess. And they have the best donuts, like honestly, it's not just like a gimmicky location. Oh my
1: gosh, they are so good! (laughs) They're so good.
0: The last one I had is their coffee donut highly recommend it literally on the frosting with like the sugar and the cinnamon is like coffee grounds i think yeah. sprinkled it's they're great go go in droves i've and had that
1: one and i've also had the oreo the crushed oreo donut yes. that is like oh they're spectacular anyway <laughs> come visit us in la and and uh have a randy's donut
0: okay so we got all of our donut smiles yes. out because this is gonna get dark real quick Eesh. so on a gorgeous june saturday morning in Inglewood, three friends while to Sentinella Park. It was Madeline and Marie Melba. They were the Everett sisters, age seven and nine, and their friend Jeanette Stevens, who was eight. The sister's older sibling, Olive, planned to meet them later under their favorite pepper tree where the girls would usually spread out a blanket and play with the toys that they had brought with them and eat their little snacks. And the park was usually pretty crowded. It had a baseball diamond, a community pool, and it was the place to be on most weekends and honestly, most afternoons even after school, especially in the summertime, people gathered there. Several other girls reported playing with Madeline, Marie, and Jeanette throughout that Saturday at the park. Around 11 a.m., Jeanette approached one of the pool attendants and asked for some rope. She said that Eddie the sailor was going to show them some tricks and she needed some rope and seemingly no questions asked. She was provided with some rope and she ran off.
1: Mm. So at 12 p.m., The girls gave their blanket and some other items to an attendant at the pool check stand and asked him to watch the items for a little while. One of the little girls kept her Mickey Mouse doll and the other held on to her thermos that was full of milk. A woman saw them scurry from the pool to a grassy knoll in the direction of Baldwin Hills with the girls exclaiming that they were going to hunt rabbits. So later in the afternoon, a park worker saw smoke coming from the direction of Baldwin Hills. So they were worried about a campfire and they went to investigate and he observed a man come from that direction direction in a hurry and get into a roadster automobile with a box on the back. Baldwin Hills as we know it today is actually kind of a distance away from Sentinel Park. It's like an hours long walk. So that's something to keep in mind as we go through this story and facts start to emerge about the alleged perpetrator. Another witness saw a local crossing guard coming in from the direction of Baldwin Hills. And then in a residential part of the same area near the park, a woman saw a man run by her home with what looked like blood on his clothes. And that was approximately at 5.30 p.m. in the afternoon.
0: Right. So that evening, the girls' parents become worried as they don't make it home, and they send Olive, the older sister, and Jeanette's brother to the park to go look for the girls, but to no avail. Inglewood PD was notified at 6.30 p.m. of the missing girls, and at 8.30 p.m., the parents demanded that the police search, as there was really no way they could imagine their girls being runaways. I mean, they're so young. Patrol officers searched and they talked to folks who had been at the park that day. The chief got the information out on the radio to other surrounding agencies and witnesses started to be contacted. They learned of the girl's request to the pool attendant for rope. So it seems like they were really gathering information rather quickly. And then by 11 p.m., hundreds of people, including law enforcement officers and civilian search posses were activated in the community.
1: That was a very big deal back then And to think that this is 1937. So all of this yeah. is probably being spread like wildfire by radio. It's probably yeah. by radio and word of mouth. And yep. people are like, we got to go find these kids and people are just rushing to help, which is actually it's kind of heartwarming in a way. It's it a, is. This story has a real tragic ending, unfortunately, but that so many people showed up so quickly at a time when social media didn't exist. There were just a couple of limited ways of disp- dispensing of information. But yeah. unfortunately, nothing turned up by daybreak, and a statewide alert was made for the missing girls. Kidnapping for ransom was ruled out because the girls' families were really of financially modest means. So police are realizing now that this might be the work of what we now call a sex offender. and they started bringing in and questioning every individual that might be a sex offender. So at that time, they were called degenerates. They yep. were kind of lumped in and called degenerates in the community. And although they didn't have a public list, the police absolutely did have a list of what we would call the usual suspects for yeah, crimes just like this.
0: From their footbeats and community policing. I mean, absolutely. they knew everybody.
1: Right. Especially you think about the population being substantially less than it is now. Oh, yeah. So meanwhile, the search party grew with these searchers on horseback, private planes in the air. And- Again, it was a really nice example of a police chief asking for help from other agencies and citizens alike, which is not too common. There are right. police chiefs they are like, nope, this is ours. We're going to do it the way we want to do it. But clearly, he realized that he did not have the resources within his department to pull off the search. And for the benefit of finding these little girls, he wasn't going to just try and handle it himself. That says a lot about his decision-making process. So if you'll recall, the father of the woman who wrote the book was a brother of these missing sisters. And he was only 13 at the time. He also took part in the search and he was really afraid of what he might find. It was really terrifying for him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So let's turn to some suspects here. Obviously, this Eddie the sailor character sounds like the person that could be responsible with the way that even the little bit that we know, it sounds like he was grooming the kids with, you know, maybe this promise to go chase bunnies and let me show you some rope tricks. So after the girls go missing, Olive, the older sister, said that the day before she was at the park with the girls and a man called Eddie the Sailor asked Olive to go buy some rope at the hardware store so he could show all the girls some tricks. She said that he would also do these like weird double-jointed wrist tricks too. And he at some point said, hey, I can take all you girls to go rabbit hunting, promising each girl their own bunny to come home with them. So Olive, being the older sister, said we're not allowed to go anywhere with strangers. And she took her sisters and left. So this this sounds like a pretty good lead. While being interviewed by police, Olive described this man as having a small black mustache and wearing blue overalls. And so they set her down with a book of mugshots and she picked out a man by the name of Orville Strong. And some other children and even some adults also identified Strong as being a man that was in the park on the day that the girls went missing, as well as other days leading up to the day in question.
1: So we know that just a few months prior to the girls going missing, Orville Strong was convicted of the crime of contributing to the delinquency of a minor, but the original charge for that incident was actually rape. And he had accosted a 14-year-old girl on the street in Inglewood, and he only received probation for that offense. Again, it was a very different time. His only other criminal history was public drunkenness, and LAPD Chief Davis publicly criticized the legal system for letting a known sexual offender get off to too lightly, and he vowed to search for him. However, after much investigative work, police confirmed that Orville Strong was actually 1,500 miles away in Washington State, working at the time that the murders occurred. They confirmed his alibi based on time cards, paychecks, and witness statements. So again, everyone's being pulled into this search, including Boy Scout troops. So the Boy Scout Troop 203 search team finally discovered the girl's bodies. On Monday, June 28, 1937, the little girls were lying in a ravine, their shoes all lined up in a row, all three of them had rope around their necks, and their bodies were bloody and bruised. These Boy Scouts were only about 13 years old themselves, and so that must have been incredibly shocking for them, because it also appeared that the girls were strangled and they had been subjected to multiple sexual assaults. Even police at the scene were horrified. And also the thermos of milk and the Mickey Mouse toy were found nearby. The investigation turned from a search now into a manhunt and a mob of over a thousand men formed at Inglewood Police Department. They vowed to go to the police department every night until the killer was found. The police told the crowd that they had a number of degenerates in for questioning and that they were sure that they had their man. So a 14-year-old boy went to the police department and reported that a local crossing guard had tried to get him and other boys to go for a walk with him and that he was often seen hanging out on Main Street of Inglewood on Saturday nights, but he was not there the night the girls went missing. So when he was seen again, the boy described him as jumpy and checking newspapers frequently. The investigator realized that a crossing guard had tried to use his crossing guard badge to get closer to the crime scene after the girls had been found. That's very notable because that is sort of a commonality mm-hmm. of a behavior going back to the scene of the crime. But this is also like a little bit suspect as a 14 year old is like just so willing to throw somebody under the bus to like walk that. into
0: the police department and be like, hey, I have information.
1: Yeah, he's that he's be, acting yeah. jumpy and checking the newspapers is like, well, you seem to be way more engaged in his behavior than he's engaged <laughs> in your behavior. But
0: yeah, but there was that early report of someone seeing a local crossing guard coming from the Baldwin Hills area.
1: Oh, got it. Okay, so maybe there was more of a connection. Got it.
0: Maybe. I I think it's, at least for the police, they got to hear this term crossing guard over and over again, start thinking that this might be a suspect. I want to talk about character we've talked about before because he inserts himself into this story. And we spoke about Dr. Paul DeRiver back in one of our earliest vintage episodes back in 2019. And he's a controversial figure in LA history. He was a psychiatrist who aligned himself with LAPD. He inserted himself in a lot of sexually motivated cases and had some rather bizarre dealings and interest in the Black Dahlia case for which... He was eventually kind of discredited, and the police department started to distance themselves from him after that. However, during the Babes of Inglewood case, he created what was probably one of the first profiles of an unknown subject in a sexual homicide. He was allowed to view the girls' bodies at the coroner's office, and then he produced this profile.
1: So this is very interesting, the quote that you pulled for us to read because Deriver is a big character. And the thing that's difficult is that reading his writings and reading about his history pulls you in because he was not an unintelligent man. He actually did know a good bit of what he was talking about. And he actually had some decent theories. And then it was complete crazy town, which is why law enforcement wanted to pull back from him, right? Yeah. So this quote that you pulled if actually a perfect example of it because it starts out with something that's so reasonable and makes a lot of sense and then it's like okay woodle doodle so here we go look for one man probably in his 20s a pedophile that might have been arrested before for annoying children. He is a sadist with a superabundance of curiosity. He's very meticulous and probably now remorseful, as most sadists are very often masochistic after expressing sadism. The Slayer may have a religious streak, and he may become prayerful. Moreover, he is a spectacular type and has done this thing, not on some impulse, but on a deliberately planned affair. I'm of the opinion that he had obtained the confidence of these little girls I believe that they knew the man and trusted him. So I'm going to take that back because this is not the greatest example. There are other
0: quotes, (laughs)
1: but I do think. Yeah, I mean, there's things that are there that are doable. I don't see where he's coming up with the religious streak. And he even says may have a religious streak. But here's the thing about doing that kind of work, you have to be careful about making suppositions because just sort of, I mean, I'm all about working from the gut, but your gut has to be informed by research and experience and education. Totally. And when you make a statement like that, you can lead investigation completely down a rabbit hole, Ooh, rabbit hole pun that really could take them in the wrong direction. And also he's making a broad statement. Most sadists are often very masochistic after expressing i sad- and like- I-
0: Never heard that before. Never
1: heard that before. I'm
0: not sure. But yeah. if you're I talking
1: if you're talking about somebody that's a psychopathic sadist, they're not gonna yeah. have any remorse because oh, that, no, no, that no. part of their brain doesn't fire that way right no
0: i i think it's it, it's interesting on number levels just even looking like oh this could be like the first documented incident of criminal profiling or you know yes, something like that absolutely. and how the police might have been like oh this doctor this psychiatrist like you're right like they might glob on to some of these traits that he's talking about and run in that direction and that could be dangerous but i think Food for thought as we get into the suspect that comes up next.
1: Yes. So police turned their sights on the crossing guard who had been at the scene, Albert Dyer. And as you're going to hear from... The next part of our research, he's a really interesting individual and somewhat like kind of tragic in a way as the, yeah. as this actually ends up. Dyer was 32 years old and married, and he had often been out of work, but he had recently been hired as a crossing guard at Centinella Elementary School in Inglewood in 1937. So very recently under the WPA program, which was the Works Progress Administration Really cool government program that did amazing things all across the country at that time. So the boy who had told the police about the suspicious crossing guard was driven to an area where WPA crossing guards were gathering. He immediately identified Albert Dyer. And as police approached Dyer, Dyer exclaimed, I never killed those children. I never killed them. He then took a newspaper clipping out of his pocket that showed him in a photograph with other searchers near the ravine where the girls had been found. He was then taken in for questioning. Totally makes sense, right?
0: Yeah, obviously. Let's right. let's bring this guy in at this point.
1: <laughs> but as guilty as that makes him sound, there's context that starts to emerge, for right? Sure. So the first interrogation lasted only about 30 minutes and he did not have an attorney present. Not smart, but then there's a reason why he's not smart. He reported that he had been working in his garden that day and police quickly came to the conclusion that he was probably a nut who was fascinated with police work. Besides, he didn't have a car and they were looking for someone with access to a vehicle. So he was then released from their evaluation or interview.
0: And after his release, police interviewed a number of other suspects, including a man with several tattoos who said he sometimes went by the name Eddie the Sailor another man who had a conviction for a morals offense against a young teenage girl and had admitted to driving in the Baldwin Hills that Saturday, or there was the man who left a pair of pants at a dry cleaners with what appeared to have blood on them. So they were running down a bunch of leads. Charles Keefe was a man that was looked at originally because he drove a Ford with a box on the back. They also found a bundle of wire inside of his car, and he told police that he had been in Inglewood on the Saturday in question, and police found a bloodstained shirt in his bedroom. That, so, does, that
1: does not look good for Charles Keys. That Ralph does Keith.
0: not look good. Another suspect who crossed paths of investigators was Luther Dow, and he was an ex-con who was arrested with a girl's skate key in his pocket. He had scratches on his back, his sides and stomach, as well as grass stains on his clothing. And two women identified him as the man who had been playing with the girls on Saturday morning. Hmm. Now, I'm not going to get into it. I mean, we could do a psycho babble corner on it. But if you read Pamela Everett's book, every time you come across like a forensic psych concept, like how horrible eyewitness testimony is, she gets into the research on it. So again, that's why I love the book so much. But eyewitness testimony and the research is robust, eyewitness testimony is shit.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't count for anything, but there are some things about Luther that for me, yeah, already is like the number one suspect, but let's who else you got?
0: Yeah, let me, let me tell you about Fred Gotzi. Okay, so, Fred. So Fred is another name that came up during the investigation. He had some sort of history of residence in Utah, and he had actually been paroled from the Utah State Prison in January of 1937. But he had a sister who lived in Inglewood that he would visit on occasion. And his former wife that police were able to track down said that he was incredibly cruel when he had been drinking and had been quote unquote, picked up several times for molesting girls. He was also said to be good at card tricks and people had called him Freddie the Sailor. Hmm. When police saw his picture, he was a dead ringer for Orville Strong, the first guy that had been picked out by Olive that was up working in Washington.
1: Mustache and overalls, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. So police learned that Gotzi had also recently obtained a goat in his Ford Roadster. And that was important because they found animal hairs on the girls. So at first they didn't know were these really like bunny or rabbit hairs. It, it, just as part of this investigation, they were learning that, well, here's this guy with recently in contact with an animal. Several witnesses ID Gotzi, the woman who saw the man running in her neighborhood with blood on him, said he could be the guy. The man who saw the suspicious person bending his wrists back and doing those tricks with the kids. The other witness who saw someone coming out of the Baldwin Hills, they all said that Gotzi could be the guy. And Olive also agreed that he could have been the man that she had said that they had talked to the day before, sort of saying that he and Orville Strong, who she previously picked out, were so, so similar in their appearance. However- All of these suspects get lost to history because there is no further evidence flushed out on any of them by investigators.
1: That's right, because the police just turned around and put their sights back on Albert Dyer after a source had told them that he was talking about details of the girl's injuries before the coroner's findings were released. And then he stormed into the police headquarters himself one evening shouting, what do you want with me? And then this made them suspicious all over again, and they kept a tail on him after allowing him to leave. So on July 4th, 1937, police approached him and asked him to come down again to be questioned. They drove by some sites relevant to the crime to shake him up a little bit, and a team of Inglewood and LAPD detectives questioned him for about an hour, again without an attorney present. He denied having anything to do with the crimes. They then decided to take him to the Hall of Justice building in downtown L.A., very impressive building, by the way, symbol of justice, to turn up the heat more. And when he arrived, news reporters and a mob had gathered outside and police had picked up his wife and brought her to the location as well. They were sure to walk her past the room where Dyer was being kept so that he could see her frightened and and, and, and terrified demeanor. Within 20 minutes of the next interrogation session, investigators emerged stating that Dyer had confessed to the crime.
0: On July 5th, a second confession was recorded by a stenographer this time, and details were released to the media. The interrogation was classic false confession territory. Mm. The police asked yes or no questions, basically setting up the narrative with an intimidated suspect simply agreeing to the story rather than telling how it occurred of his own account, right? So you went here, yes. And then you did this, yes, etc. This back and forth portion of the interrogation, we know about it because it was recorded and it was released and it was reprinted in the LA Times word for word. He reported that he essentially took the girls one by one, promised take them to... See rabbits and strangled each girl as they were away from the others in the brush of the ravine. He said that after the killings, he knelt down over each body and prayed. He then said he took their shoes off and lined them up. Essentially, though, he was talking about evidence that had been running in the papers for days, which he may have also seen with his own eyes because he was part of the search party. He actually was even part of the recovery party that was there when they found the girls. You know, the Boy Scouts had alerted everyone. He had gone up there. So there were a total of nine confessions from Dyer and they were riddled with inconsistencies.
1: Well, let's get a little bit more background information on Dyer because this is very interesting. He was raised by a foster family from the age of four in Redondo Beach, California, and although he was originally from New York, so he only made it up to fourth grade level and eventually quit school when he was 14. As a young adult, he attended barber school, but he quit that before completing the program. And prior to becoming a crossing guard, he was a laborer for the WPA in another capacity for several months. So this was the most steady employer that he had ever really worked for. And his job as a crossing guard required him to be at a post right outside the girls' school, meaning that he would have helped them across the street on an almost daily basis. So he was also married to a woman named Isabel. They had met at the movies two years prior, and seven months prior to his arrest, they had moved to a little shack in Inglewood. She asserted that she was completely in support of him and told police that sometimes they quarreled, but that he was not violent or he was not sexually deviant at all. She talked about how he sold papers at night to get her a little extra money to do nice things for herself. She said that her husband asked her to make a scrapbook of the news clippings on the girl's murders, and she figured that he was grieving after having known them through his work and seeing them on a daily basis. So Dyer's foster mother told the media that he loved attention and was somewhat, quote unquote, insane. So clearly, many people did not have the language to describe individuals with a wide variety of mental health disorders from moderate to severe to mild and even just eccentricities, right? People who are eccentric. So others described him as crazy but harmless. And there were accounts of him sitting in a barbershop and rambling to himself at times. And he had posed for pictures taken by the media and was jovial with the police while they were fingerprinting him. So it was as if he was sort of marinating and reveling in this all this attention not really realizing this enormous negative light that he was now being portrayed or painted sure. in
0: or yeah where it's going to get him down the road almost like he doesn't have the ability to think through that
1: exactly he's clearly not processing it and that that information coming from his foster mom that like yeah he likes attention Mm -hmm. Very interesting here.
0: Yeah. His criminal history consisted of a burglary and some citations for vagrancy, but there was no history of violence or criminal sexual behavior. And after his arrest, four psychiatrists were hired to evaluate Dyer- including Dr. DeRiver. They interviewed him as a group (laughs) and then they met with him individually. Interesting tactics there. But they determined that his IQ was 60. So we know that an IQ of 69 or below indicates some intellectual disability being present. And how they wrote it up is that they categorized him as quote, feeble-minded. Yet they found him otherwise sane and competent to go ahead and stand trial. Prior to his trial, however, alibi witnesses reported that they were in the presence of Dyer on Saturday morning, so he couldn't have been at the park. Others maintained that the man that they saw with the girls was not Dyer. He did not fit the description. And Olive also stayed strong in her story that Dyer was not the man who asked them to get the rope the day before. She was sure it was Fred Gotzi. Additionally, where the girls were found Seemed like it was too far a walk for those little girls. The parents were sure that they couldn't make it and that the perpetrator would have to have driven them there. Dyer did not have a car. And then we have the account of the other guy coming out of the Baldwin Hills and getting into the roadster with the box on the back. However, good on investigators, I guess, but as leading up to the trial, what they did is they took three little girls similarly aged to the victims, and they actually made the three and a half mile walk within an hour with these little girls and said that they did just fine. Like even afterwards, they ran back to the police car that was picking them up. So they sort of retraced it to see if it could be done in if that amount of possible. time. If it was possible, yeah. And if it was possible, yeah. The media also started putting pressure on the DA's office that maybe someone else was responsible for this crime because of all of the conflicting reports. And, you know, the media is like as much of an investigator as the cops at this time period, especially in Los Angeles, they're interviewing witnesses and coming up with their own theories. And investigators claim, you know, their their sort of reply to all of this was, look, we gave him chances to tell us, hey, are you making up a story? Or do you think you're being forced to tell a story? You need to tell the truth and tell it freely. And they said through all of this, he continued to confess. Again, though, this was through a lot of yes or no questioning that he's just saying yes to everything. And in one of his confessions, he stands up and sort of raises his right hand and tells them yet again, I killed those three little children. So subsequent confessions in the presence of a stenographer were very confusing. Again, they didn't match previous accounts. So things like he at some point said he strangled them with his hands versus strangling them with the rope or the wire. Yeah, I scoped out the girls previously or no, it was just completely impulsive in the moment. There are a lot of big inconsistencies that were both backed by evidence but also things that maybe the killer would only know.
1: But you said he was also exposed to a lot of things oh, yeah. through the investigation. So yeah, there's this sounds really fishy. It's also interesting to me that the media immediately, like media is usually like, no, let's like pour fuel on the fire. And here's one where they're <laughs> going, hey, something sounds off about this. Yeah. That's interesting. So a grand jury convened and Dyer took the stand with no attorney present. Again, some cognitive issues for not making a, good decision there
0: or the system not advocating for him you should have a freaking attorney present right
1: but what would the why would they have any investment in in him they wouldn't right because they want to they want to wrap this up at this point they want to like close it down no matter who was actually responsible for it dire though during this trial Said that an officer had slapped him during one of the confessions, but he went ahead and recounted the same story or one of the versions of the story of killing the girls. The grand jury determined that there was enough evidence to charge him, and he told the judge that he pleaded guilty and did not need an attorney. However, an attorney was retained by his friends over the next few days. So now his new attorney had two psychiatrists come in and talk with Dyer. First, he confesses everything to them. Then he takes back his confessions. Then he confesses again. And then he takes those confessions back again. And when asked, why are you going back and forth? He said, I like the attention. And, you know, if I'm going to have to do maybe two years for the crime, that's okay. But then they were like, No, dude, this is not two years. You could get the death penalty. He decided that he was going to start telling the truth.
0: So he was indicted and we're going to make this long trial short. I just want to highlight some notes about the trial. The jury was sequestered at the Roslyn Hotel downtown, which I'm sure was beautiful and it's heyday. It's now not so much. Not so much anymore. (laughs) You could not get me to go in there. His wife had been in custody almost as long as he did as a material witness. They kept her in custody downtown at the Hall of Justice justice and it again miss everett gets more into this in her book but you know she held strong for a long time it also seemed as if she had some mental health concerns or some diminished capacity issues because they just kept interviewing her over and over again to where she was saying things like oh yeah, he made me wash his clothes when he got home and then told me to never speak of it again. So it's just some really hinky things. But his defense team provided a very robust defense. I really think that the prosecution completely overwhelmed the jury with photos and descriptions of the girl's deaths and injuries Just hit them with all that. Yeah, like people were fainting. Men were asking to be taken off the jury. Like it was horrific the way they just went above and beyond- with the the brutality of this crime. And during the trial, when the defense psychiatrist finally got to testify on the stand, he said that he estimated Dyer had the mental capacity of about a nine or 10-year-old.
1: See, that's very interesting to me because it sounds very much likely that his wife also shared that I level agree. or close to that level of functioning. They found each other. They moved yeah. into a shack. yeah you know, yeah, that's what and, they could but he was trying to support her and make some extra change for her. It sounds like what is that movie? There was like a TV movie back in the 80s about two DD adults that fall yeah. in love and get married. And it's a very sweet story. It is. I mean, I like again, I don't there's there's always the possibility that he was guilty, but it doesn't really look like it. Because after 43 hours of deliberation, the jury did convict Dyer to death on the date August 26, 1937. So again, This all happened really quick. This was not a long long drawn out trial. This was really quick given the severity and considering the number of suspects. Like that's crazy quick. And coincidentally, on the same day, a new California law took place calling for the end of death by hanging in favor of using the gas chamber. However... It did not affect Dyer's case since his crimes actually occurred before the new law took effect, which is very interesting because that would not hold up today. They might have done it back then, but they would not do that now. The jury never questioned his guilt, and they got stuck for a time during deliberations 11 to 1 in favor of the death penalty with only one juror holding out for life imprisonment. However, it was eventually unanimous and on September 16th, 1938, so it did take another year after that, Dyer was taken to the gallows at San Quentin State Prison and hanged. And he had denied all of his previous confessions and maintained his innocence until the very end. Don J. Oliver, an uncle of the Everett girls and a fingerprint expert with the LAPD, was quoted as stating, he is getting what he deserved. Dyer was the second to last man ever to be executed in the state of California by hanging.
0: Wow. Pamela Everett, obviously, and probably in support promotion of her book, she's done a number of interviews and there was an interview conducted with her where she was asked, what do you see as some of the inconsistencies in the case against Albert Dyer? And remember, she's an attorney. She does volunteer work for the Innocence Project. So you know she's got a very broad background in being able to look at these types of cases. And really, she's of the opinion that this is a wrongful conviction. So she says, quote, they line up like a laundry list of the hallmarks of wrongful convictions from the front end police interrogate him with no attorney. There are gaps in the time that aren't accounted for in Dyer's police custody. And then his confessions themselves read like the types of confessions we know through DNA evidence are false. Yes, sir. No, sir. The police are providing the narratives. He's just nodding his head. And even when they let him fix the story a little bit, he's inconsistent about everything like even how he killed them. Was it slitting their throats or was it using his hands? Who was first? Where'd you go? The sexual assaults, how did they occur? He changes the story more times than he gets it right. He confesses nine times and he recanted five and nothing in any of those recantations or confessions is consistent in any way, end quote. So that's a good summary of- Very good. What a horrible job this was. And they're really, it's like, you know we talked about the wonderful- aspect of this community coming together and wanting to find these girls and then sort of the mob outside the police department really wanting justice. I mean they were telling no wonder the police department was like, "Hey, we think we have our guy because they were like, "Let us have him. Yeah. We have we have already dug a ditch for him. Let us have him." And the police tried to keep that at bay as much as possible, but clearly they felt the pressure from the community for this. Yeah, crime.
1: well they dug themselves in with one narrative rather if they had said no we've got to figure out who this is they and but they wanted dependent on this guy which is also just like i mean we see this in media we see it in actuality it happens a lot not a lot but it has happened and probably happened more in pre- Modern 2022, 21st century than it does now. But very sad, very sad because it looks like you know everything points really to another suspect. Jeanette Stevens is buried in the Inglewood Cemetery, and Marie and Madeline are buried at Forest Lawn Cemetery in Glendale, California. And the best alternate suspect, Fred Godesy. Died in 1949.
0: Yes. So thanks again to Pamela Everett for her work. And the book is once again called Little Shoes, the Sensational Depression Era Murders That Became My Family Secret. It goes way more into depth, like I said, on the impact on the community and her family and how she sort of went back and talked to people who would actually talk about it, as well as some of the concepts of wrongful convictions. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad, you know, this is a rough one. I'm glad we got it done, but that we also did it right. So I, I guess, you know, just to piggyback on your housekeeping at the top, the best place to find when our next live stream will be, please join our Instagram at LA not so podcast, because on our link tree, I always have the next upcoming date there. You can click right on it and go straight to our YouTube, but it always gives you the date because I know they're not like they're kind of whatever Saturday we have available at this point. Yeah. (laughs) They're sort of random, but we'll keep to, we'll keep on trying to announce them here. So we're going to be speaking with. Brittany and John from Wicked Deeds on November 26th next. So again, find us on YouTube for that. And then also piggybacking on your, your Patreon plug, we have some fun holiday stuff. So if you've never considered joining, this is a good time. You can pay for the full year right off the bat and get a discount, but we'd love to spend some time with you guys around the holidays and just do some fun sort of casual stuff.
1: Yeah, we've had great experience with watch parties, and we're going to continue that as well as having other local and also virtual events. So follow us, put us in your calendar, listen to us, listen to the old episodes, and we're going to see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Thanks, folks. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawlspace Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions.
1: The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons Attribution License, and you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube.
0: All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com.
1: Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements.
0: Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash L.A. Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad free listening experience and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings and super cool swag coming your way.
1: Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on L.A. Not So Confidential. Bye, folks.